Hello everyone, I'm Prema Gurunathan, I'm Managing Director of Upstream, and Upstream is a partnership between Imperial College London and Hammersmith and Fulham Council. Upstream's own roots are um, in a local industrial strategy jointly published by Hammersmith and Fulham and uh, Imperial College. And since 2018, we have connected, supported and shone a light on the science, tech and creative sectors in both intentional and serendipitous ways. Um, our work is driven by the belief that local networks which facilitate collaboration and learning also enhance the momentum at which organizations and places can grow. For today, we are delighted to bring to you Julieta Dexter, founder and chief growth officer of White City-based Science Magic Inc., which partners with brands to define and articulate their purpose, develop their commercial strategies, and build their digital interfaces. Prior to launching Science Magic Inc., Julieta set up the Communications Store, TCS, when she was 26. Hats off, Julieta. Um, TCS was one of the UK's leading strategic brand development and communication partners to the world's best luxury brands. And over the course of 25 years, as CEO, she steadily expanded the company, both in terms of staff and client portfolio. In doing so, she remained ever faithful to the ethos and values of honest business delivery, the core of TCS. Today, she's going to discuss themes from her powerful and I believe hopeful book, Good Company, How to Build a Business Without Losing Your Values which explore how she has really led her own businesses. Amongst many things, Julieta is uh, an ambassador for the Princess Trust campaign, Women Supporting Women. Um, she's a trustee for Beauty Banks, a charity combating hygiene poverty in the UK. And she's also been a regular fundraiser for the Great Ormond Street Hospital. Julieta, welcome and thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Prima and the team and uh, for, for inviting me to talk to you all today. And I hope that we're gonna have a really uh, useful and above all helpful uh, hour together. I'm really uh, honored to be talking to you today. And of course, above all, I hope that in the current climate that we find ourselves in, that wherever you are, um, that friends, families, colleagues are healthy and safe uh, as we navigate the pandemic. So I'll start a little bit with what is purpose in an organization or a, or a company. Ultimately speaking, it's not what you do, but it's why you do it. It is the organization's reason for existing. Uh, and indeed, there are many reasons for organizations to exist. Really, a purpose is the identity of the organization a committed way of behaving day in, day out, walking the walk rather than talking the talk that everybody in an organization latches onto. That really is the business's purpose that perhaps might be greater than we're here just to make a lot of money. Um, and so that really is something that has defined uh, my own life experience uh, uh, professionally and of course, personally as well. A little bit about my story. Um, I, you, you, you can never choose where you land on this earth. We come in the same way and we go out the same way. But I am deeply conscious that where I landed was uh, most simply put in a very privileged uh, situation. I'm English. 
Uh, my family is English, but had lived in Italy for over 150 years. So I've grown up in what I consider to be one of the most beautiful places in the world. I speak three languages. Italian is my first language. And because of that, and I'm sure because of my education at home as well, I have a very sort of clear sense of duty that if you are privileged enough to be blessed with good education and uh, help around you to give you the greatest chance of success and enjoyment in life as possible, it is almost one's, I, I wouldn't say obligation, it's one's privilege and one's duty to help others and to frankly give back in one way or another. I was very fortunate to go to great schools. I got myself to Cambridge University where I worked extremely hard to try and make the most of the opportunity that I had been afforded. As I was leaving university, I was probably like a lot of people, I hope, uh, I hadn't got a clue what I wanted to do. I really didn't. There was no real direction that I knew what I was going to do. And then like so many people in life, three weeks before my final exams at Cambridge, my father, who was very much my anchor in life, uh, went to sleep and never woke up in the morning, aged 58. And they do say that some people that are quite driven have quite often had some form of personal tragedy, which perhaps drives them, creates ambition or inspiration, etc. So it really was at that point in my life, uh, just 21, that I went into the workplace and started my career in charity fundraising and PR. And that was a fantastic experience. I was incredibly lucky. I had the most wonderful mentor. And at the end of my first year of working for this charity in the fundraising team and the communications team, I felt absolutely crestfallen that I'd managed to raise, this was in 1992, uh, 150,000 which I thought was abject failure. I think a little bit differently about that now, actually, that personally I'd, I'd managed to raise that money. Um, but in any case, life moved on. And I was very fortunate with my mentor who said to me, you know, you, uh, you know, seem to be interested in your work. So uh, don't stay here for too long. I had a little office in the back of a cupboard. And um, he very much gave me the opportunity to get out there and see what else I wanted to do. And I was very lucky, I suppose, also because of my languages, that I uh, was given a job in uh, in, in, the, in the early 90s, and we all know what that uh, time of life was all about, in uh, communications and public relations PR of brands in the lifestyle sector, particularly in fashion, beauty, lifestyle brands in the sort of aspirational sector. And that was really uh, a place that I never expected to find myself at all but I very quickly understood that it was the most dynamic and exciting career path. And a world had opened in front of me that I, frankly, I never even knew existed. The breadth of the skills that you need to work in these industries is vast. And that appealed to me as a sort of multitasker, writing skills, budgeting skills, financial skills, creative skills, administrative skills, management skills, leadership skills. It kind of allowed for um, somebody who is a bit of an all-rounder like me to kind of have a go at everything. 
And I absolutely loved my work. It was really, really fantastic. And frankly, I've loved my work ever since. What I found very, very difficult to cope with, however, was the culture and the values that I found in that industry and in that sector and in those workplaces. I moved around a little bit, but, and so um, I'm sure that some of you may have had the um, fortune or misfortune of watching a film called The Devil Wears Prada, a film that was made for $37 million and I think grossed about $400 million at the box office. And I went to see the film with my husband, uh, my now husband and his sister, and they found it absolutely hilarious. And I sat there completely stone faced and said, how can you be laughing at this? I've had handbags thrown at my head. I've had coffee spilt over me on purpose. I've been treated like the junior because somehow I'm a lesser citizen. And I just didn't find it funny at all. I mean, I promise you, I, I do have some sort of a sense of humor, but that was a bit of a stretch at the time I found myself in my professional life. And I guess that sort of having the um, experience that I'd had in education, where values and culture very often in uh, educational organizations are really held at the highest value um, in terms of the food chain of how organizations live and breathe and and, and keep going, frankly, it's very much very often on a sort of value set of what the school or the college or, or, or university stands for above and beyond excellence in education. And so that really sort of troubled me because I thought, you know, I'm willing to give these companies anything because I'm a hard worker and I love what I do. Um, but this cultural environment is actually destroying my confidence and really is not the type of environment that I want to spend my life in. Um, I guess you could say, uh, you know, there's always two sides to a coin. I was very young. Um, I was possibly quite stubborn. Uh, I was stunned, frankly, by the behavior of some of the more senior people actually in my company. And um, I was probably at the same time still grief stricken to be truly transparent with you. And so it was at that point that I decided to leave where I was working and decide what I was going to do instead. I was extremely lucky that two of the clients that I had worked on uh, resigned from the previous company that I worked uh, for and wrote to me at home. It was still the time of letters. And it was good that they wrote to me because I didn't have a job. I wasn't paid any notice because they were irritated that I'd left. And so I, I really didn't have uh, any sort of money and job to pay my rent effectively and so um, I started a business and I had these two clients so that was my golden ticket and I decided to go into a sort of dark room for a week um, and write a business plan and at that point as, as, as Prema just said at uh, uh, 25 years old at the time I wrote two business plans because I felt that these two things were intrinsically linked for the future of an organization. One obviously was a business plan that you would expect normally in terms of financial growth, operational, financial, commercial endeavor and uh, positioning in terms of what my new company was going to be doing. And the other was another business plan around culture and values and ethics and what we would stand for as a business and how we would treat one another. 
Of course, the business plan was a simple X and Y graph. And, uh, you know, there was no internet then. So I couldn't download a template of a business plan. Um, and I'm showing you my age now, Harple, stop laughing. Um, but the point was, was that my, my business plan was twofold. And it wasn't that one was 80% of it and the other piece was 20%. It was that these two things were equally valuable to me in terms of what I was trying to achieve. And at that time, I wrote something that actually sits on the website of Science Magic, which is called Our Commitment. And, uh, you know, I think that if you work at McDonald's, you sing hymns together about being McDonald's team members and like you're part of the family of McDonald's or uh, every every company does it very differently. So this really is our kind of crib sheet. And it's a piece of paper that I keep on going back to again and again and again and again, when perhaps I'm not behaving very well or one of my business partners tells me that I'm being a total nightmare. Um, that really sets out how we behave as a business, how we treat each other, how we respect each other, how each and every person in our organization, irrespective of rank, title, salary, or responsibility, is a vital part of the ecosystem of our organization. And I feel deeply passionate about that. And I'm absolutely delighted that our commitment is a document that still rings so true, more so today than it did when I crafted it in 1995. And the second thing that I did was I set out four core values. And I didn't want to call the company Dexter Communications. I wanted to call it something that would house amazing talent, like-minded people, enormous talent that would live and breathe and work and enjoy themselves in this organization under the umbrella of a company that became known as the communications store. And so the C's of the communications store, the four C's, the values of the communications store were that every single thing that we would do or try to do or remind ourselves to do would be that we would try to be clever, that we would try to be considerate, that we would try to be considered. You know, this was the eve of the beginning of um, tech-driven communications. And actually, you know, text messages were a newness and you could just flip a text message off without even thinking about it. And that wasn't going to be very considered. So we wanted to be considered. And finally, we also wanted to be countercultural just because everybody else was doing something and you know focused on one thing it didn't mean that we couldn't stop and pause and say hmm I wonder whether there's a different way of doing this and that was really my mantra I suppose having seen uh, organizations with, with a culture that didn't suit me I'm sure it may have suited other people but it wasn't right for me and of course, then finally, I felt very strongly about an economic principle that was created in 1975. So nothing new and certainly not something I could possibly take credit for, but um, the triple bottom line that I believe today and then that business should be a force for good, should create positive impact and should have a positive social, environmental and financial economic impact. And so I set out my little stall. I sometimes spent quite a lot of time picking up the telephone, pretending that it was ringing, saying, hello, this is Julietta, uh, the communication store. How can I help you? Because obviously nobody rang, because when you set up a company that doesn't mean anything to anybody except yourself, that is how it starts. It's a 
powerfully humbling experience and a very, very valuable one. Not to have the strength of a company name that stands for something to bolster you already. And so I guess that's where I set out my journey to try and create this environment along four very key values, along a very, very uh, detailed commitment of how we were going to behave as a company. And there I sat with my new uh, desktop, uh, which was quite something from PC World at the time. And I started out. And every time at that time in my life as a young woman, if I may say that, that I talked about kindness in the workplace, about uh, looking after people, about how much I cared about the staff. At that time, quite often, um, I was sort of belittled and, and patronized and sort of made to really think that you just focus on your EBITDA, just focus on your numbers, don't worry about any of that sort of warm, cozy, sometimes girly stuff, I suppose, if I could be so bold as to say that. And I will admit that I remember going to Marks and Spencer to buy myself a pinstripe suit and a black briefcase because I thought maybe I might be taken a bit more seriously if I looked a little bit, you know, tougher, frankly. Um, and so really at the time, looking back, I felt um, lucky, very lucky that I had one or two real guides and mentors. And I think that again, anybody in a professional life who can find decent mentorship, somebody who really chimes with you and actually really cares about your professional development is immensely, immensely helpful. And those people will stay with me uh, forever and ever and ever uh, because they gave me the confidence to keep going and they understood my personality, they understood what I was trying to achieve. And whilst a lot of the world was telling me that it simply didn't matter and you know, stay quiet about that kindness, empathy stuff and that you actually really care about the staff, um, uh, you know, don't, don't focus too much on that. So I did it, but I did it quietly in rather a timid way, to be honest with you. And I certainly did not go around talking about uh, purpose and ethics and culture out loud, I'd sort of be a little bit more uh, financially minded, could I say, because I felt um, that it frankly wasn't the conversation of the time. It wasn't the narrative of the time. And I sometimes felt very patronized in doing so. But stuff started to happen. I would go around and about uh, London at the time. We now also have offices in New York. And people would say, oh, yeah, I know TCS. Everybody says that's the most lovely place to work. It's just such a nice day. I've met people from TCS. They're just the most fantastic people. What a great place to work. And how do you create that culture and that environment? And, you know, to be honest with you, when you make it up as you go along, you don't really take those questions very seriously. But it did start to come back at me that actually what I felt so deeply in my soul had a value outside of what my EBITDA was. And so um, twice at that time in my life, uh, acquirers came to uh, ask me if I would sell the business. And that was really where I started to feel more conflicted because when it came to it, the valuation of the business really only focused on a multiple of EBIT, not on the value of the culture or of the environment that we'd created. So I resisted acquisition uh, three times in total, because when I forced the issue uh, during those years in, in our business life, uh, in my business life, um, 
it wasn't prized or valued. And I thought, well, if that's how it's gonna be, I don't wanna play with you. So thanks, I'll keep going my own way. And so I guess that, you know, to, to try to give some form of, of tips and help uh, in this, I really, really urge everybody to do the sometimes quite difficult actually um, task, a little job of finding four words that define your values. They really define who you are, not just at work, but also at home in your life. You know, would I like to be remembered as somebody who was caring, passionate, strong and wise, both at work and at home? Yes, I certainly would. And again, every single thing that I do, uh, I think, am I being caring, wise, strong and passionate? And I found that very, very helpful. I use it in interviews. Is this person caring? Or do they feel passionate about what they're doing? Do they seem strong and intelligent? And so that to me has always been a very useful framework which has guided my professional life. We then sort of moved on as a company to really start to codify our behaviors. Okay, fine, so this is happening. People are saying that it's a nice place to work. How can we actually codify it? And so we did do quite a lot of work to create um, uh, training documents, workshops, et cetera, about uh, things like this, how to listen to other people in the office, uh, how to put their concerns about their work, perhaps just before your own for five minutes a day. Uh, humans actually listen to each other in very, very sporadic ways. Most of the time you're listening to somebody, but actually your brain is computing what's, what's going on in your world really. So you're only partially listening. Um, being aware of your energy on other people. If you walked into a room, my business partner always used to pick me up on this. If you walk into a room with a, like a bear with a sore head and say, you know, you've got a grumpy face on, immediately everybody says, oh my God, Julietta's got, you know, some, there must be something wrong. Maybe something's going wrong with the business. And actually smiling, uh, just smiling at people and saying good morning, uh, particularly when you are in a leadership position can have an enormous impact on somebody's day. It's not complicated. But very often, you know, just in terms of Biden's example, people think that leadership is about power. People think that leadership and climbing up the greasy ladder is about somehow being more important than other people. And I personally think that that is career suicide and not organizationally a place that I would want to be in. I gave a presentation once to a very, very big global watch company. And in my uh, speech, I said um, that I suggested that leadership could maybe go to the reception sometimes or to the PA crew or to the interns and offer them a cup of tea and have a chat. And I was told to take it out of my presentation. And I said, I, I, I don't understand why. And they said, well, that's because um, nobody would ever do that in this organization. And there will be a lot of people who look down in the room and your presentation uh, will not be appreciated by leadership and you won't be asked back. I'm glad to tell you that I did it anyway. And so we started to codify everything, but in the end, a company is about humans. It's about how each and every person in the business behaves, not just the leader, uh, good or bad, it's about how everybody in the organization understands the culture of an organization and how they wish to go to work every day and uh, be there for one another. And I do want to touch sort of quickly um, on this ethos presentation, particularly as a female. Uh, you've probably guessed by now that I am, by gender, a, a female. And 
I feel very strongly that men and women and people of all genders, creeds, cultures, race, ethnicity, sexuality must learn to work together. And so within that, I felt deeply passionate about working very, very closely with, uh, you know, in, in, in the past of my, my career, uh, my male colleagues. And sometimes I feel that um, if I could say this really boldly, I don't think often women are the best at saying the truth of what they feel with a brave and loud voice. And I will tell you very briefly that I did have a client who, frankly, a male client who was bullying me. And um, I'm sure that I presented as somewhat vulnerable female. And, and, and that is at times who I am. And therefore, at a point, I decided that I was really going to dig into how to deal with that. And I said to him one day, I feel that you are bullying me and I don't know how to deal with that. And it is making for a very bad working dynamic between us. And I think that that level of truth and honesty and speaking your voice in an unemotional, thoughtful way that hopefully gets to a better outcome is truly important of how all of us work together in the future of the workplace. And I have to tell you that that person is one of my dearest friends. So it worked. And I've had to learn uh, to really speak my truth and uh, be very, very clear about what I believe in for myself, what's okay for me. It might not be okay for the organization or indeed for the other person, but mutual respect, lack of aggression, constructive criticism and respectful dialogue and discourse between colleagues in a workplace, in my view, is the only way to go. And so uh, I have been in business for 25 years, as Prema very generously said. And as I reached my 25th anniversary, as I had given myself rather grandly in the last few years of my uh, time as chief executive of the communication store, that rather grand title, I realized that entrepreneur founder syndrome is real. And you must never constrain your own organization by the skills that you have yourself. I'm good at some things and I'm not good at others. And so I took myself into another dark room with some very, very, very smart people and said, how could I make this organization better than myself, hire people around me who know things that I don't know and who believe in our culture so strongly, but would like to go on this journey to build an even better business. So having been the chief executive with the grand title, um, we went into a room and we've rebuilt a company that was called the communication store that is now called Science Magic, which I believe is the future of how we will drive and build purpose-driven brands and talent uh, in the future of a world as we uh, come out of this incredibly difficult period of pandemic. It was lovely for me that I was talking uh, in Austria at a summit about the spa and wellness industry. And I challenged the spa and wellness industry to ask themselves whether they really wanted to make people well or whether they just wanted to make money from uh, people. And so uh, when I was speaking at that summit, um, I was very, very fortunate to get a book deal to talk about truth and values and ethics in business. And that is the book that I published this year in April. There are other books that I found enormously helpful that I wanted to share with you today 
again, which I hope are helpful. One of those is Shoshana Zuboff's The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, which I think explains everything that we should know about the intended and unintended consequences of digital tech-driven media communications and how the world goes around, how consumers consume. Uh, I'm sure all of you are very, very familiar with Simon Sinek. Uh, I believe his latest book, The Infinite Game, is frankly a much better book than mine. And uh, ha he has a wonderful point of view about understanding purpose. And another book that I find that I use as a textbook quite often is The Practice of Adaptive Leadership. I fundamentally believe that you never know it all and you've got to keep learning. I'm committed to a life of learning. And I found adaptive leadership, the practice of adaptive leadership is the name of the book, extremely helpful. And I'm very, very grateful to my now business partner, David, for giving it to me. So I talked earlier about our commitment and how we've really tried to build today in today's world, the purpose and values of our company. Our commitment is alive and well, it sits on our website. And from that, I'm absolutely delighted and proud that a group of people inside our company uh, decided to form an intersectionality committee. And I would strongly urge each and every business to make sure that an intersectionality committee is formed. It was not formed by myself. It came from the body of the people that I call my family, our community. And um, those people are all people with minority lived experience. And my goodness, have I been on a learning curve. When I started the business, it was good enough that you were a female starting uh, to be a founder entrepreneur. Now my eyes are open, my heart is open, and my head needs to learn fast what inclusion and diversity truly means uh, from the privilege that I come from. The Intersectionality Committee um, have done the most amazing job at listening and learning to the community and to our community and making sure that everybody feels exactly that, included in their diversity. When the Black Lives Matter movement uh, uh, really raised its head again, although I obviously realized that it's nothing new, that this really gave the IC committee and myself uh, a true awakening of quite how enormous the gap in our knowledge, in my knowledge, was as a business leader, that unconscious bias is alive and well all day, every day. And my goodness, we have such a long way to go. And so Black Lives Matter, the hashtag MeToo movement, other behaviors around the world really then created the following three things. We created a pledge, nothing performative, but rather, frankly, a lifelong ambitious ambition, a lifelong intention to have a pledge as a business, which again, you can find on our website uh, about how we will behave now in uh, an incre in increasingly diverse world. We have a pro bono scheme, which helps us to work with uh, community members across all parts of the community uh, that we can do that work for free to help businesses and entrepreneurs, perhaps less privileged than I was. And we also have a commitment of 650 hours uh, a year in volunteering. And we have got three partners that we volunteer with. And those schemes are now all also on our website, if you're curious. 
Internally, we have a well-being strategy. We have a whole uh, list of initiatives in how we will improve our recruitment, our hiring, but not just that. How long do people stay with us? How comfortable do they feel in our environment? So just those hiring stats, I think, is not really the long-term game here. Pulse surveys, we share all of this with clients. We help clients with being more purpose-driven and getting their house in order in this way. We have mindfulness courses, we have consciousness courses, uh, we share mental health initiatives with our staff to do everything that we can, particularly now, to help them get through this. And so now as I start my new journey, as Prema said, my title is, is Chief Growth and Purpose Officer. And I don't believe those two things are mutually exclusive. I think they are absolutely two things that work hand in hand. My job is to help my colleagues work closely with my colleagues to drive growth in our organization, to drive new business and new revenue streams, of course, with people like Harple, um, but also to be the gatekeeper of how we behave as a business. So I'm excited about my new journey. I feel that perhaps all of that was a dress rehearsal and that now we can codify, we can productize this. We can really perhaps with a little experience behind me to bring this to life in a way that fundamentally does what I previously and initially set out to do was to ensure that I gave back, that I proudly employed people uh, and that, um, we made a contribution to society, which obviously is what Upstream do so incredibly well. I'm extremely proud that David Pemsel, the, chief, the former chief executive of the Guardian newspaper, has agreed to be my business partner and go on this journey with me. He takes the chief executive role and together, together with our colleagues, we will drive a business that I hope will be an even better example of how businesses might evolve in the future. Um, I hope this has been helpful. Thank you so much for your attention. And um, I'll hand back to Prema. Hi, Julieta, thank you. That was incredibly insightful and hopeful, I think. Um, we've got a couple of questions that have come through on the chat, but I, I actually have a question myself, which is, you talked about resisting you know, uh, an acquisition being uh, acquired about three times. Um, and you, know, you push back because, the fit, the culture, the values weren't aligned. Were there instances where, you know, there were perhaps amazing, interesting companies that approached you and, you know, you went for the contract and in the end, you decided not to take on the work? And how does that process work in your mind? Um, Prema, thank you for asking me that question. And it's a, it's a, it's, it's a great question and I wish I'd covered it, actually. We have a very standard set of criteria. Um, and our uh, SVP, our Senior Director of Purpose, Responsibility and, um, uh, and Sustainability has a set of 30 criteria. And um, I want to make the point of non-judgment. All of us in some way, shape or form are getting it wrong environmentally or socially or, you know, no, nobody's perfect and businesses have got a long way to go as we, as we all know. And so that set of criteria that we've written and set out is our sort of first sort of grading system. And if, for example, a, a, a client really doesn't sit with our values or what we believe in, in terms of the triple bottom line, et cetera, 
we don't make the judgment. We go back to them and say, look, we're going to be really honest. There's stuff going on in your business that doesn't make us feel very comfortable with representing you. Very often the answer is, okay, great. How can you help us? And then we have got the strategic processes internally and the executional processes to be able to help them. There are times where they say, well, stuff you, we don't care. We're, get, we're making lots of money in a mine in Bangladesh, uh, mining for luxury bathrooms, and we don't care how uh, our colleagues are treated. And at that point, we will turn down the business. I also want to make the point that uh, my business partners and I have also turned down existing business uh, for exactly the same thing, which might have slipped the net, particularly in a social environment. I'm thinking of a situation where um, one of my uh, colleagues um, in Science Magic was spoken to incredibly rudely and aggressively um, by a, a client. And um, in three occasions in my life, we have resigned the business because of that cultural difference. And I think that those were the moments where I felt that our culture was the most alive and ex expressed to everybody in our community and brought us together so strongly because I think our community knew that we would sacrifice revenue for what we truly believe in. Thank you. Um, I'm going to come to a question on the chat from Meg, which says, I've heard you talk before about the power, and then she put in brackets, rather than hindrance of maternal instinct and the role it has in leadership. As a woman, what do you think about the balance between innate and learned leadership? I guess, I, I guess Meg, my, my answer would be 50-50. I suppose that um, sometimes people say that I wear my heart on my sleeve too much. Um, and also, yes, I have brought my maternal instinct to, uh, to work, and very proudly so, and thank you for reminding me of that. Having said that, um, I must tell you that working very closely with David, who was the chief executive of The Guardian, uh, and clearly is a, is, is, is a man to my maternal instinct, is really eye-opening. So whilst I take myself wholly into the workplace, I do fundamentally believe that you can, you can learn leadership and different styles of leadership um, and different techniques of leadership. And if anything, I suppose I feel like I've gone back to primary school in a way because David is teaching me things that I never knew before. And I'm aware actually now more than ever of some of my massive weaknesses and failings. And that does not mean that I'm feeling, uh, you know, weak and, and, and terrified, but much more, I think I mentioned to, to, to Prema and Steph before, before we started, that actually, if it doesn't hurt a bit, you're probably not learning. And I'm learning a lot right now because I've taken myself off my little pedestal and pretty much starting all over again with somebody like David by my side who is teaching me things that uh, I didn't know before. And so I'm finding that hugely inspiring. So in conclusion, Meg, take yourself as who you are, but be always open to know that you can learn techniques and ways to improve yourself as a leader. Thank you. Um, I'm gonna put two questions together um, because they actually run on quite nicely. And uh, the first one is, were you ready and emotionally prepared to sell your business after 25 years? How hard was it to say goodbye to everything and your work family that you created 
what was starting again like, and they put asking for a friend. Um, and following from that separate question, but it runs in uh, quite nicely. What has your experience been fostering a sense of community at Science Magic, uh, considering it's a newly structured company, balancing sustaining company culture and keeping morale high while working remotely and bringing in new talent to fit and succeed in that new environment? But three questions there, I apologize. Yeah. Uh, but do what you can. Okay, well, um, on a personal level, anybody that wants to do this, it's really hard. <laughs> um, it really is. Um, I think that, um, well, two things. Um, I've never wanted an organization to be about me. That's why I didn't call it uh, over my name. I wanted it to be a place for exceptional talent, for me to learn and grow from other people that, and I do that every day. Um, so that concept intentionally, right from the get-go was what I wanted to do. So no surprises there. I think that uh, hypothesis is always very different from the practice, right? And I think that um, the journey that I went on last year when I was uh, thinking this, crafting this, uh, asking David to partner with me to, to, to build and launch and grow Science Magic, um, I, I'm somebody that really loves the mountains very much. I, uh, my peace, my happy place is, is walking. I'm a little bit of a mountain goat. And so um, I'll be very transparent again and tell you that I sometimes would go up a mountain by myself and stand there and practice the speech that I would give to the staff to say to them, we're not TCS anymore, we're science magic. And here's the CEO and here are the new colleagues and all of that is in the past. And it's not called TCS anymore, it's called science magic. And I would howl. I would howl and howl and howl to myself in the mountains knowing that nobody could listen. And I suppose that, you know, really it was a grieving process. It was truly a grieving, grieving process, and I fundamentally believe not about storing up your emotions, but actually somehow, uh, privately perhaps, uh, getting them out. And uh, I did get them out, and I think I got them out in the right places. And, um, and once I decided that this was what was going to happen, that then science magic was just, I just loved it. And suddenly I found myself thinking that the communication store, A, it sort of, um, tethered our, our feathers, it kept our wings clipped, because very often we'd say, oh, but you're just PR and communications. And I would be like, no, we're not. We're a whole bunch more than that. And there's no just about PR and communications anyway. It's a fantastic profession. So the, the, the idea of really letting something go and starting something new, because I also love the name Science Magic Inc. so much, um, was just fantastic. And so, yes, I grieved. Uh, but I, every cell of my being is excited for the future of science magic and what we will now create. Um, in terms of the people inside of the business, sure, it's been tough and change management is very dif difficult. But one thing that David has taught me is to be absolutely clear and transparent about the org chart, about the operational structure, about who does what, about who do I go to if I want to learn about experience or science or magic? Ah, I know, it's my colleague Harple, right? And before we had this slightly more sort of cotton woolly structure, which wasn't so defined. And I'm learning from David that uh, that definition of making sure that, you know, some people might not like it, you know, I've handed the guy my title, you know, sometimes it's like, did I really do that? Um, is you know humbling it's challenging 
and actually I think drives you to learn new things. And within that, I think that, that the question about how do we look after people and maintain this culture um, uh, in this world of Zoom, well, I could go on and, and share with you our well-being policy. We have all sorts of things, just a few things. Uh, we aim for no meetings on uh, Wednesday afternoon. We have an absolute forced break between 1 and 2.15 every single day of the week. Um, we, for example, have a, a, a pulse surveys to check in on how people are. We have coffee mornings uh, group by group. David and I have a structure called 30 by 10, which is that we just take 10 names out of a hat. Uh, and we spend 30 minutes with people chatting. If it's more than 10, it becomes unpersonal and people don't chat and they don't ask questions. It just becomes a bit sort of formulaic. We have a mindfulness course running uh, every, every uh, Thursday at nine o'clock. We had it this morning. And uh, Daniel, my other business partner and I, we are on that mindfulness course. So we want to show the staff that it's not just, oh, here's a few things for you to look after you, that we do it as well. Um, and, and I could go on and on extended holidays, extended summer hours. We will be uh, hopefully coming out of uh, the lockdown at Easter time, perhaps. And so we've really tried very hard. It's really difficult. And again, I think that just spending time uh, like this, uh, making sure that the, um, the, the team at the communication store and the new team coming in, uh, bringing wonderful new skills in science magic are gelling. Um, I, I think the only other answer I can give you is that this model that I've written, which slightly arrogantly I've called the Dexter model that I've been teaching um, at the business, at the MBA program at Cambridge University is really a, a a six step process of how to make sure that people understand what collaboration, inclusivity, and understanding and championing diversity in the workplace really means. So it's a, it's a very simple model, frankly, of how to create a process of, actually, I don't understand that techie geek over there, and I'm a creative person, and so, you know, I don't really understand what they're talking about, and I don't really want to work with them. And so it's it's a practical process to try and help with us with that. And it's building, it's evolving, and uh, and it's helping. So uh, you know, this is not easy, uh, but change for the sake of improvement, change for the sake of betterment, is is an absolute must, and, and I'm deeply committed to that. Julieta, thank you so much for those wise words and you know uh, practical steps as well not just wise words uh, but I think we can all agree that it's been a really really enjoyable afternoon with, with Julieta thank you so much for opening up your heart your experiences and speaking so honestly it's very very much appreciated and not that common yet I dare say <laughs>